So the first thing I'd like to consider in answering this question, how are disciples made, is that disciples are made, first and foremost, by the Holy Spirit through the power of the gospel. That is, discipleship, following Jesus, following all that he commands us to do, begins with a supernatural changing of one's heart. Some call it new birth. Some refer to it as regeneration. Our confession speaks of effectual calling. But the process of being a disciple begins with a supernatural change that is only affected by the Holy Spirit. Now I'll say that as I was considering this question, how are disciples made, I almost skipped over this piece completely. It's easy to jump into the practical outworking of uh, what are the things that we do to help people be more faithful in following Jesus? Uh, What are the things that we do to um, encourage people in their faithfulness of daily living? But we have to remember that before anything that we do, there is a supernatural work of God that must change a person's heart if they are going to be able to truly follow Jesus. That is, truly follow him from the heart, from a changed person. So we have to begin the conversation of discipleship with the Holy Spirit in the, in the work of regeneration. And if we look at our, the passage of the Great Commission, we see that there's this phrase here, make disciples. And I would argue that making disciples by its very nature is a supernatural act. And while there's not much there in Matthew 28 that points to that, if we look at John chapter 3, we see that Jesus is absolute in his affirmation that you have to be born again if you're going to truly follow him. So I'm going to uh, read from uh, John chapter 3. A familiar exchange in which Jesus is speaking with Nicodemus, and he speaks about the necessity of the new birth. So in John chapter 3, verses 2 through 8, we read, beginning with uh, Nicodemus speaking to Jesus, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not wear no You do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so this would be the classical passage in which Jesus is uh, so clear of the necessity of the new birth. The necessity of that that working of the Holy Spirit to give us new hearts and new eyes to be able to see and understand and receive the things of God. Now, I can imagine that there's some who may object in saying, yes, I agree with what Jesus says there, but what does that have to do with discipleship? What does that have to do with being a follower of Jesus? Um, uh, Jesus is talking about entering into the kingdom of God, not being a disciple. But what I would like us to think about is in the Great Commission passage, think of all the kingly language. In the Great Commission passage, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. It's kingly language. Jesus is the king. And he, and he also tells his disciples to teach others to observe all that he has commanded them to do. So this whole idea of discipleship 
is really helping people become subjects of the king. That someone can't be a subject of the king, King Jesus, and part of his kingdom unless first they have been born again. And we have to start here, because it's, like I said earlier, it's too easy to just jump to thinking in human terms. What are the things that we can do to help people become more faithful followers of Jesus? But we always have to start with the supernatural realities that are behind that. Now, when Tim teaches y'all, is Sunday school normally pretty interactive stuff, or is it mainly... So... I didn't know what the dynamic was for your Sunday school hours, so I didn't uh, design it specifically that way. But does anybody have any thoughts or questions before I move on to the next piece of this? Yeah, go ahead, Bill. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's where we have to start in our thinking. So, the, the new birth is going to be the foundation for thinking of what, how do we make disciples. It doesn't start with us. It starts with the work of the Holy Spirit. But as Reformed folks... We don't believe that God has just left us after our conversion to change ourselves. We also don't think or believe that this act of the new birth, of regeneration, um, instantaneously changes every part of a person. That is, it changes the core of who a person is. It changes their fundamental disposition towards God. But as we all know, even after the new birth, there is still struggle for sin. And there's a lot of work to be done. And in uh, some call this process sanctification of, of, of this ongoing conformity to being more like Jesus. And in our tradition, we believe that there is a primary way which God does this shaping, that God does this making us to be more faithful disciples of Jesus, and that is through the ordinary means of grace. Those ordinary means of grace, familiar language at this church, is the language of our uh, confessional statements. Um, but in, in some way, we don't believe that God has just left us with a just-do-it theology in which we lift ourselves up by the bootstraps. But we believe that he's given the church an appointed means for our being shaped into being more like Jesus. Uh, the confession speaks of it in a few different places, but the, the shorter catechism in question 88 asks, What are the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of his redemption? And the answer goes that the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, all of which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. So our tradition, we, in, in, our, in our reading of the scripture, we believe that uh, God uses very ordinary things to fundamentally shape his people. That is, the preaching of the word. 
And the word, yes, in our own times, but we've, we see that there's a special place for the preaching of the word in the sacraments and in prayer. Um, and I'm guessing that some people uh, would ask, okay, that's great that your confession says that, but is that what the Bible teaches? And I think that Matthew 28, again, the Great Commission passage, really helps us see this very clearly. This is a very crucial passage. It's some of Jesus' last words to his apostles before he leaves. And what are the directives that he gives in this process of making disciples? He really gives two main things. To baptize and to teach. And it is quite simple uh, what he has given, at least at a basic level, for how people are to become disciples. Disciples. Now, some <clears throat> may say you're reading too much into this passage to develop this whole uh, theology of the ordinary means of grace. Aren't there all sorts of other things? Don't Christians also uh, need uh, psychologists to be able to be changed? Don't uh, Christians need uh, small groups to change? Don't Christians need uh, their private, uh, quiet time to change? And uh, each one of these things, to some degree or another, there, there is certainly... Place. I'm not going to argue against having a quiet time in personal prayer. Absolutely. I'm uh, not going to argue against having fellowship uh, with others. I'm going to argue quite strongly for that later. But at the bedrock level of how is it that God shapes his people, we see the ordinary means of preaching and the sacraments. And what I'd say here is though um, Matthew 28 uh, gives us uh, just these, this small snippet by saying baptize and teach. What that is, what we're seeing there is shorthand clues to a bigger theology that we see throughout the New Testament of the ordinary means of grace. I think Acts 2.42 helps us to see this in bringing more clarity or at least seeing similar ideas being repeated. Uh, so in Acts 2, we, we, we're at Pentecost, we're at the, the, the beginning of the New Covenant people of God, the New Covenant church. There has been this great revival, and, and Peter has preached in one of the final comments in the chapter as it describes this new people who are formed as the church, describing what they do. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. So again, we see this idea of teaching and of sacraments. Uh, this time, though, instead of referring to baptism, it's a reference to the Lord's Supper with uh, communion in its statement of the breaking of bread. And I think it's important that though these are relatively short passages, they're passages that one could maybe read over very easily if they're going through their Bible, these passages both take place at central points in the development of the church. And uh, we can't ignore this central aspect of how God is shaping his people. And that's why it has been central to our tradition and, and central to reform theology. Um, so I was not reform raised in a Presbyterian or Reformed church. I was raised in a charismatic church. And I, in my early 20s, I uh, started uh, listening to hearing these guys. Now looking back, they've been called the Young, Restless, and Reformed. Uh, movement. I'm not sure if that's a, a, a term that's familiar with you. It was a, a bunch of uh, mostly younger guys they, they, with some older guys who were mentoring them who uh, had this very influential movement within the evangelicalism of, um, of, of discovering some traditional teachings specifically about Calvinism. But one of the downsides of this movement is that the Reformed got distilled 
to just the five points of Calvinism, our teaching on predestination. And while certainly the teaching on predestination is an important piece of historic Reformed theology, it certainly isn't the only piece of it that is central to our tradition. And as I learned more about the Reformed tradition, I I discovered that this idea of an ordinary means of grace, understanding of Christian ministry, was another central piece to this Reformed tradition. And it was one of the things that eventually led me into uh, being a member and then an elder in the confessional Presbyterian church because I really saw that evangelicalism tends to be drawn this way and that way with every wind of doctrine and there tends to be all these fads and to get uh, caught up with new movements and other ideas. The church we were in was uh, went through a what's called a missional movement and there was this constant downplaying of what was happening on the Lord's Day, as the Lord people gathered, and an elevating of what was happening in small groups. Now, personally, I don't have an objection to churches that want small groups, but those should never be elevated above the corporate gathering of the people of God on the Lord's Day to sit under his word and to to receive good gifts from God, including the sacraments. And, um, and, and, And we can't lose sight of this as we think about this question of how are disciples made. I say that this is, uh, as far as the ongoing process of being shaped to be more like Jesus, this is bedrock. This is non-negotiable. This is God's number one piece of how he is shaping his people. And uh, it's unfortunate how many evangelical churches in our time have forgotten this, have downplayed it. And it's also unfortunate how many uh, parachurch ministries have raised up and in some ways uh, not realized um, that they're doing the work or replacing the work which was fundamentally given to God. Now, we've talked about parachurch ministries. I've realized at our church I might be uh, treading on, uh, potentially treading on people's feet. Okay. Uh, because some of these ministries are ministries that we hold dear and that we've been benefited by. But just to name a few of them, we have Bible Study Fellowship. Anybody here in Bible Study Fellowship right now? Anybody here been uh, blessed by Bible Study Fellowship? I know Bible Study Fellowship was a huge blessing to my wife the years. Uh, There are also groups like Camps Crusade for Christ and the Navigators. And my point in this is not to say that there is no place for these parachurch ministries. But if you pay close attention, you will realize that oftentimes these ministries, there becomes a certain confusion between what they are doing and what is the task that is fundamentally being given to the church. We need to be careful. Um, I'm not saying don't be involved. We have people in our church at BSF. I personally sponsor a guy in Ukraine who's part of Campus Crusade. But what I look for when people are involved with them is making sure that they understand the place of the church versus these parachurch ministries. And it's crucial to remember that the ordinary means of grace, the preaching of the word, the sacraments, God's fundamental way of shaping his people is a gift that he gave to his church. Um, And that includes the institution and the structures of being accountable and under the authority of elders, of being a local body of people who bonded together. And that is centrally where God works to shape his people. Now, I have one more 
point that I want to talk about, and it's actually going to be my biggest point as far as the shaping of disciples, but before I move into that, any thoughts, comments, questions? I taught middle school for eight or nine years, so I've, I've gotten used to, like, waiting a long time when I ask if anybody has any questions. Um, <laughs> Um, because eventually some student would want to break the awkward silence and just ask anything, so, and just trying to get them there. So the, the, I, my, my guess, and I, I don't know you folks that well, I've met some of you over the years, um, but knowing Tim, knowing our denomination, is that uh, nothing that I've said so far is hopefully too uh, controversial or hopefully new. But I think there is a third piece to this question of how are disciples made, that Reformed churches can grow in. And I'm speaking first and foremost from my own church, an area where I think that we can grow in, that we are striving to grow in, and that many of the other Reformed churches that I have spent time with, that there is room for growth. Um, Thankfully, I've seen that a lot of Reformed churches have recognized this and been trying to grow in it. And that is that disciples are made through discipling relationships in the church. Okay. And uh, I'm going to give this the most time this morning because I think it is potentially the most controversial in our circles. And now, um, when I read the Bible, I see, especially the New Testament, I see overwhelmingly speaking of the need of Christians to be involved in one another's lives. Just think of all the one another passages uh, that we see throughout the New Testament. And yet... Um, I had a hunch that this was controversial in some reform circles, and then it was a couple months ago, I attended a presbytery meeting from one of our sister denominations, and afterward I had an opportunity to uh, sit around a fire into the wee hours of the night, um, hanging out with some of the men from that denomination. And in the course of having conversation around the fire, one of my buddies, Charlie, who belongs to that denomination, threw out this question. What are you guys doing to disciple young men in your churches? And the response was quite shocking. They almost seemed to be taken back by the question. One of them immediately uh, went in to give us a lecture on the centrality of the ordinary means of grace. It probably didn't help, though, that when he said ordinary means of grace, I jokingly said, what is that? I assumed that knowing that I was in a, a reform church, if they were in a Reformed church, that ordinary means of grace is a given. This is central to our understanding of how God shapes people. But he went, they were going on and on, and it seemed, the impression that I got as more and more joined in on the side of this guy, who seemed to be reacting quite strongly just to a simple question, what are you guys doing to disciple young men in your churches? It seemed like they wanted to pit ordinary means of grace ministry against a one-another ministry in which Christians are involved in one another's lives, encouraging one another in their faith, stirring them on to one another on to loving good works, and actively investing themselves in the lives of other believers to help them to grow in their faith. And hopefully now you see why I started where I started, because there is no denying of the necessity of new birth, no denying of the centrality of the ordinary means of grace. But there are some within our circles who have overreacted against evangelicalism's dismissal of the ordinary means of grace, 
and gone so far into that that they've forgotten that the New Testament overwhelmingly speaks of this idea of a one-another ministry where we are involved in each other's lives and encouraging one another in faith, and that God uses each one of you in the lives of one another to help each other become more faithful disciples of Jesus. And so, as I said earlier, I'm trying to anchor all of this in the Great Commission passage of Jesus in some way. And I will concede that the Great Commission does not directly speak to this. It was a commission given to the apostles. And they were directed to teach and to baptize, the preach word and the sacraments. But notice what Jesus says, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. So part of that public ministry of the teaching and the proclaiming of the word is teaching the congregation to observe all that Jesus taught. And one of the things that Jesus taught in John 13:34, was I'll read it, is a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so part of Jesus' teaching is to be involved in one another's lives. Because how can you love one another if you are not with one another? How can you not love one another? How can you love one another if you're not spending time with one another? And if you are spending time with one another, what is the greatest act of love but to encourage one another in your faith? If this isn't enough to persuade you, consider what the author of Hebrews said in Hebrews 3:12 through 13. Uh, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Listen. But exhort one another every day. I'm going to read that one more time. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is exceptionally strong language that we have here. Notice that it doesn't say, attend to the ordinary meanings of grace and exhort one another as is convenient for you. And it doesn't say, attend the ordinary means of grace that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sins. It says, exhort one another every day that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sins. The author of Hebrews makes this interpersonal dynamic of the church, of the church being involved in one another's lives, central to the process of faithfully... uh, following Christ, going so far to say that if you stop doing this, if you stop being involved in one another's lives, if you stop exhorting one another daily, you put yourself in danger by being hardened into the deceitfulness of sin. So I'll say it again. Yes, we're committed to the ordinary means of grace. Yes, we esteem our time together in worship as a high point of the week. But we cannot miss the central call to be involved in the lives of of one another. Without the fellowships of the saints, without the mutual encouragement of faith, our churches will not survive. And if our churches don't survive, how will we have an impact on the world around us? Around us. So when I think of the state of the church in this area, specifically our own churches, um, My prayer is that we would be marked by people who are radically invested in one another, who spend time together, who are shaping communities of Christians that spend time together and encourage one another in their faith. 
And there's this story, it's a very sad story, that often comes to mind when I think of this. There was a pastor down in Southern California who, through his evangelistic works, saw a man come to know Christ and to be saved out of a pretty serious gang. This man started attending as a church and attended for a season. But then this pastor discovered that this man was no longer showing up. He was gone. Didn't see him anymore. So he was able to eventually find him and track him down and say, Brother, what's going on? Where have you been at church? Why have you not been there? And this is the response that the man gave. When I got baptized, I thought that it was going to be like when I got jumped into the gang. Because when I got jumped into my gang, suddenly everyone had my back, and we became like family 24-7. So when I got baptized, I thought this was going to happen with the Christians. I didn't know that it was just Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights, because I thought it was going to be family. I guess I had it wrong in my head. I don't think he had it wrong in his head. And it is very sad that this man who had given up everything for Christ, given up all of his friends from the world, all of his family, as rough and as sinful as those people may have been, that he had found more sense of love and community among his gang than he had among his church. And so we have to be at churches that bring people in, who welcome them into the family, and spend time with people. It's not just enough to say hi on Sunday, to have a chat on Sunday, but we have to be involved in one another's lives. Yes, those of us who have our lives uh, put together, it can be relatively easy to go on day by day without that sense of rich community and people surrounding us. But think of the new converts. Think of those who come to Christ who have given up all and have nothing. They need the body of Christ for that process of coming to be more like Jesus. And so I'm not 100% sure where you're at as a church body, but if I could just give you some very practical uh, uh, applications in this area of being involved in one another's lives, of making, proactively making disciples. Because it can be intimidating. It's a big task. For many of us, it requires shifting the patterns and our way of doing things. And so, my hope would be to just give you some some simple ways that we, as God's people, can make steps towards being more involved in one another's lives. And so, the first thing I'd say is that discipling requires intentionality. Many of us already have relationships and have connections. But how intentional are we in those connections? How intentional are we in those relationships? I will say for myself, it is very easy to see my friends at church, and to immediately just want to talk about the week. Talk about the newest thing in the news, to want to talk about the most recent house project, to talk about what's happening at work. And none of those are bad things. But how easy it is to skip over the more personal side of how are you doing in your walk with Christ? How how was your week as far as you faithfully uh, leading your family in family worship? How uh, was your week as far as work? I know you've really been struggling with the bitterness towards your boss. How And these kinds of conversations, are we intentionally going there in our conversations? Or are we letting just the most natural parts of us dominate our conversations? 
But intentionality doesn't just begin, it, while it begins with being intentional in the relationships we already have, I think those of us who've been walking with the Lord, especially for many years, who read our Bibles every day, need to be intentional in seeking people out as well. Need to be praying about, God, who would you be having me intentionally spend time with, intentionally investing in? So the first point of practical application is just that discipling requires intentionality. It's not something that's just going to happen without prayer, without actually seeking people out in intentionality. And the second point would be that discipling starts at the home. First of all, with one's own families, own family. Pastor Titu spent three weeks in his series on discipleship talking about husbands and wives discipling one another. And just being very intentional in our relationships with one another in helping each other to, to grow in our walks with Christ. And then there is also the very natural uh, discipling relationship between parents and children. And it was just this past week that there was, I heard some unfortunate u- news about one of the younger ladies in our church not doing so well. She's been partying, she's been drinking, getting drunk, and other aspects of uh, her life that are just showing a, that are concerning in themselves and also point to a concerning trajectory as well. And my first thought was, darn, I wish there had been more faithful women like investing in this girl. And then I was like, wait, it begins in the home. And there were concerning aspects of what was going on with the parents because I know that this, this, this girl is still in connection with the parents, but there's no signs of any interaction going on there in speaking to her and confronting her and addressing this. Yes, with the tenderness of Christ, but with the firmness necessary in addressing these sins. But also I think of uh, what could have maybe been the case if there had been more women who had had connections with her. Uh, how that could have helped her in, this, in these crucial years of the late teens and early 20s where there is so much temptation. Uh, what a powerful testimony it could have been if more people had come around her and encouraged her in that. I'm not saying that that, that, that that always is the case. I mean, there are people who have, have had every single blessing that there is and yet still choose to walk in that path. But let's make sure that if our young people are falling away, that we can confidently say that. Not that they wandered away because nobody knew them. Not that they wandered away because nobody uh, had just really spent the time to invest in them. But if they would walk away, it's, it's in spite of the fact that they had a loving church community and loving parents who did everything they could to encourage uh, them to walk into faith and to uh, walk with Christ. And yet, unfortunately, in God's providence, he's uh, allowed them to walk in their sins. So I said that discipling starts with the home, yes, with the family. But also, in the home, in the sense that inviting others into your home is a great way to engage in this at a very simple, practical level. Now, I don't know if any of you have read uh, Rosaria Butterfield's book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. It's an exceptional book. I love it um, in many ways. But in conversations, I, and it's, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, it's been out for a few years now. Um, but it's a book about hospitality. And if there's any downside of the book, it's that she sets such a high bar, it, some people find it intimidating. 
uh, very intimidating how, how exemplary she is in the area of hospitality. And she, in the book, is clearly trying to say, people, hospitality, you don't have to have everything in order. It doesn't have to be this big show. You don't have to have this gorgeous dinner. It can just be a pot of soup and laundry on the table. And yet still, I, in several conversations that I've had with women who, or men who've read the book, they found it just she was so... Her hospitality was such a big part of her life that they found it almost too high of a model. But uh, regardless, I still encourage you to read it if you haven't. It's such a uh, great uh, way for thinking about hospitality and the place that it plays and how hospitality can be a great place for Christian discipleship. Andrew, yes. Yeah, go ahead. Um, about that book, if this woman, the author, came out of um, a lesbian lifestyle, mm-hmm. and so her, like your man you mentioned in Southern California, mm-hmm. this woman is coming out of a lifestyle that is like they are in the community. Yeah. And so when she comes away from it, she sees this giant flaw in the church because there is nothing going on compared to what she came out of. Mm-hmm. So that's her emphasis <laughs> in the next book is like it's lacking. Mm-hmm. So she's got a real force behind her to sort of almost prove something in a way to so to keep it sort of in the context. Not you know, of course we should be hospitable, but um, it's an amazing comparison that she makes, and, and it's kind of convicting because to have the LGBT community be such a lovely family mm-hmm. environment, kind of we ought to learn from it. Yeah, Mark. Yeah, I mean, it's super convicting. So yeah, it's very similar to the guy coming out of the gang. And, uh, yeah, I, I think we need to, as a church as a whole, um, you know, starting with our own church in Olympia, um, just realize this is just an area where we've got to grow. And they, that growth isn't going to be just, it's not going to be a black and white change overnight. And that's why I'm trying to just leave with some very practical baby steps towards just being more connected with others. So since we're about out of time, the final one was that discipling can take place in natural settings. Uh, but it, again, it all comes back to intentionality. So that means the time that you have together here on the Lord's Day, begin there, just in, in the way that we speak with one another. But also, uh, hopefully there are points of intersection during the week where our lives touch base, and those can be off, some opportunities for discipleship as well. Um, I'm a painting contractor, and I just hired on a summer help, and it's a young guy from our church who's going to be going into the Army. He's just been working with me for two weeks, and the number of great, and he's actually a very immature baby Christian, only been uh, known the Lord for about two years, not even a, a member at our church yet, and, but the number of great conversations he and I have been able to have in just this short period of time have been uh, so encouraging, like small things. He was just talking about buying a boat, and should he report the full amount that he paid for the boat and pay the full taxes, or should he cut that in half and only pay half the taxes? And so we had an opportunity to discuss the ethics of that. Uh, He's in a relationship with a young lady in the church, and there have been conversations about that that have come up. Um, Also, I accidentally nicked uh, someone's van uh, while carrying a ladder out of uh, their driveway. And I went up and talked to them and admitted what I'd done and said that I'm happy to pay whatever it costs to fix that nick. And out of that, he noticed that, and we had a conversation about that. 
And I'd say that uh, discipleship, it, some of the richest conversations just hap- happen when having a daily uh, life kinds of encounters with other believers. So we are out of time. I think I, what time does Tim normally wrap up? 45? Okay, so uh, just final word on this. is just, in our Reformed tradition, we have a great treasure. We have a robust biblical theology. We have a high view of worship and the church, and we have a long tradition and of practical spirituality. Let's pass that on, yes, through the church, but also through loving relationships with one another. And let's warmly welcome people into our churches, and not just into our churches, but into our, our lives, so they, they can see the impact of this great tradition, which which we our hope and prayer and our belief is that it is a rich tradition because it is a biblical and Bible-saturated tradition. And so through discipling relationships, uh, let's uh, help people to learn about it and see the glorious work that God has given us. With that said, let us pray.